Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guest. Today, we are recording from my studio in FIDI, and I am thrilled to be sitting with Jim Costello, who is a senior VP at Real Capital Analytics, and we are going to take a dive into something that more and more impacts decisions being made in the real estate space as much as, and maybe now, even more often than location, location, location. And that's data, data, data. Jim, over a 20-year period at CBRE, you fulfilled the roles of economist, senior strategist, director of investment strategy, and managing director of investment research before joining Real Capital Analytics in 2015. You earned a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Chicago and received your master's degree in economics from the University of Illinois in Chicago. Thanks for being here today for me and the Realty Speak audience, Jim. Yeah, thanks for having me here today. I would imagine fulfilling all those roles at CBRE armed you with a unique understanding of the use of data in general and how it can serve the clients of Real Capital Analytics. What was it that originally drew you to the industry? And please share with our listeners the story from then to now. Sure, then to now. If I go back to the early 1990s when I started in the industry, I was just out of grad school, and I had been thinking of going into urban planning, but I was really drawn towards anything tied to computers. There were ways I saw that you could increase efficiency using these data tools as opposed to doing things manually. And that whole process improvement that came with using data to get at issues as opposed to rule of thumb, that just naturally led me to working with a group of economists, working with a lot of data that CBRE had, and just over time, I sort of evolved in my roles uh, in the information world. So tell our listeners a little bit about what CBRE is in case they don't know that. CBRE is a large real estate services firm operating uh, around the world for leasing, asset management, brokerage, and investment management. Anything that touches commercial real estate some of these uh, big global companies like CBRE touch it. Give me a little context. You're at CBRE, you're fulfilling your final role as managing director of investment research. You know, what's your typical day like in terms of the use of the data? I wore a couple different hats. I was helping individual investors think about strategies on communicating stories about real estate, primarily it was helping them think about what stories make sense for fundraising for investments. What is the rationale for investing in industrial? Or what's the benefit of having apartments in your portfolio? Interpreting the kind of price trends relative to return for different sectors and developing a story that would go into a pitch book. So now it's 2015 and you've been with CBRE for quite some time. And you decide to jump to the other side. Yeah, I jumped to the other side, but in some sense, I was jumping back to where I was before. Earlier in my career at CBRE, I had been more just using the data and telling stories about it. 
and less of the applied in the investment world. At Real Capital Analytics, I helped step in to go back to just the interpretation of the big picture, using the data and telling stories about it. And that is a different element in the industry. Well, thanks for sharing all that with us. And I can see already that there are going to be some valuable insights to be gained from our discussion today for those in the real estate space, capital space, and data space globally, regionally, and locally as well. So let's get started. Jim, what is Real Capital Analytics, also known as RCA, and what was the vision when it was founded in 2000? Real Capital Analytics is a real estate technology firm. Our focus is on providing data on the capital markets for real estate. So it's not so much about the data as it is about the technology for the use of the data. Yeah. When the firm started in 2000, at first it was about data. It was about some collection of information. But over time, you know, we really evolved to become more of this tech-focused firm on building tools and building ways for people to use that information more efficiently. We're going to talk a little bit about that later because on that report that you shared with me, there was a section about your hedonic analysis and how you created a proprietary technology to analyze the data. That's part of what the vision eventually became for RCA. First, it was about just providing some clarity into what was an opaque market. It was hard go back 20 years, it was hard to get information on pricing unless you had a relationship with somebody. Back then, data was not as available as it is today. It, data itself has almost become a commodity, but the interpretation of the data, that's where the value comes. Am I correct? There is some data that is available today that is a little more commodified than it was 20, even 40 years ago. But it's still very precious. You know, there's a joke that data is a new oil, and that really is the case. But making sense of it, I think, is in some ways even more valuable. In some sense, I feel like the industry is awash in lots of data, and making sense of it takes time, takes effort. You can have thousands of observations from appraisals and from lease comparables and from rent comparables, but if you don't have an efficient way of sifting through all that and making something actionable, it doesn't do you much good. What's the difference today between now and 2000? I think the difference is in many ways the tools we have available to interpret the data. If you go back in time, there were some rudimentary data management tools, rudimentary compared to today. A lot of Excel files floating around, whereas today, a number of different web services tools, tools that allow an investor to link their data systems right into our data systems to pull individual observations across, all without the interaction of someone clicking on a mouse. And that kind of increase in productivity that comes about, that helps firms run things better and be more profitable. So the people that engage with RCA, you're telling me that they have an interface where things are being updated in real time as your data is being collected and being fed into the final reports that they're looking at? You know, the most advanced clients, yes, they have that type of uh, data feed. It doesn't mean that everybody has that or really needs it, but there are those types of tools where an internal reporting system can reach out over the internet, pull some information from our system, and pre-populate their templates. It takes some time to build that, 
but there's people who do that stuff that makes them much more efficient compared to the past where you had to hunt up a piece of information, write it down in pencil, type it into your system. These type of automated systems make everybody more efficient. Does it mimic a Bloomberg terminal? That's a tricky one to make a comparison on. The Bloomberg terminal has so much stuff on it. Even some of our own, some of the figures from Real Capital Analytics are on the Bloomberg terminal. We're just about commercial real estate. If you want to look at a particular investor, see what they own. If you want to look at a lender and figure out what their exposure is. If you want to look at a particular property and look at the history of pricing and transaction on it, that's something that's all there. I guess in some ways it's like a Bloomberg terminal, but only for commercial real estate. And let's define commercial real estate real quick, because I know sometimes when I talk to people and I say, hey, I'm a commercial real estate broker, they're really not quite sure what that is. Well, does he lease office space? Does he sell offices and industrial? And then I say to them, well, you know, my specialty is really multifamily and multifamily mixed use. And they say, well, isn't that residential? Yeah, it's residential property in the commercial real estate space. What would be your take on defining commercial? In that particular instance, when you describe the multifamily versus other parts of residential, the distinction I'd make there is that it's the income producing property. And that's one of the things, and I'm talking to folks about commercial real estate, you know, I really tend to focus on the income producing property aspect of it. Now, there's the development site sales, and that's that's a big part of our business in China. That's one of the biggest portions of commercial real estate investment worldwide right now. In the United States, it's still a smaller thing. We're not growing as fast. We're not constructing as many buildings, so it's not as much of the market. Ultimately, commercial real estate as an investment class It's about that income that someone wants to generate from it. Commercial real estate equals income producing real estate. That's the way I think of it. Yeah. What are the questions that a user of your data needs answered that RCA data can answer for them? People really use the information to help underwrite investment decisions. What other types of buildings nearby have sold recently? What type of price per square foot or price per unit has transacted? And what type of cap rates? are appropriate. What was a good price for an asset? But are you guys going one step further by interpreting that information? Yeah, the data environment out there in the commercial real estate world is pretty competitive. There's a number of folks trying to provide solutions there. What we're doing that's different is we're really trying to curate a story on every loan or every sale that is on our platform. So when you say curate a story, what do you mean by that? Well, we're taking not just one data set and using some AI tools to maybe scrape some stuff up from public records and put it up on a platform. We are using those type of tools to take that stuff as an input, but it goes in front of an analyst who's been trained in issues of real estate and transaction activity, and they go through each of the different stories that we get from different data sets and really put a story together on that transaction. So you might have one thing from public records with some information on some price information and some information on buyer and sellers with some LLCs. We get some other information from filings in Bermuda about different LLCs that we match then to the players involved in the deals. And then we'll get some other information from other sources, maybe some loan documentation, information from federal filings, put it all in front of a person who then makes sense of all the conflicting data sets 
and tells that story on that transaction. So it's not just a dump of information. It's our best effort at figuring out what happens on the deal. How many models are there that the users of your data have available to them? And do you have these models already set up so that if someone says, oh, I want to know this about that over this period of time, and then you can instantly provide it to them, or do you then have to go and build it for them? Yeah, model is a charged term for some folks in my industry because a model is only a representation of reality. It's not reality itself. All those charts you were mentioning, that's actual data. That's just summing the data about what's happening in the world, and there it is. So when I say model, I guess I'm really talking about a pro forma, and what you're not providing a pro forma, you're providing historical real data and the conclusion that comes from the aggregation of that data. That's right. However, I say all that, but then we do have on the side a few things that we've been building as models, as a representation of reality to try to actually get to trends as opposed to just some of the quarterly noise that comes about when you use the actual raw data out there. So what are you calling that? We have a couple different things along those lines. We have the classic set for us is something we call the Real Capital Analytics Commercial Property Price Index. We developed that with uh, Professor David Geltner up at MIT. And that's the CPPI? That's right. We've developed some other things recently. We have something we're calling the Real Capital Analytics Hedonic Series, where we control for the characteristics of every different transaction to come up with a cap rate trend that is noise adjusted is the way I'd think about it. And we also do a price series similar to the CPPI, but a little less precise. But those things help investors understand the trend in the market and not just the noise from the fact that a high quality building trades one month and a low quality building the next. So talk to me a little bit more about hedonic pricing. I've been working in that for quite some time. When I was working in CBRE up in Boston, I worked with Bill Wheaton, who was a professor at MIT, and I worked with him on some models on rent to control for the quality differences in different rent observations. It's a tool that statisticians have used for some time to look at the differences in characteristics that might lead to one price measure being different from another. So give me an example of one using what you would normally use and one using hedonic. Think about cap rates. Every building has a different cap rate in the transaction, and there's variation in it that comes about from things that, when you look at it, everybody kind of understands, well, this one's closer to a park, and it has a nicer view. This one is, in the location, just less favorable. Right, and it really doesn't have to do with the location. It has to do with what the location does to the ability to increase revenue because of where it is. Yeah, and other physical characteristics. Here's one that's a little bit older, and so maybe you need a little bit higher cap rate in the transaction. Here's one that has uh, just more space and you know, it has the ability to generate more income. And so there's different discounts and premiums on cap rates to go with all those physical characteristics. And so we go in and control for all those statistically to kind of smooth out all the bumps and kind of the average cap rate trend that might happen in a market. I think of it like a set of Bose noise-canceling headsets for cap rates. And just so all the listeners have a sense of what a cap rate means, would you just 
explain how that calculation is done. It's actually a simple cap calculation. And then also an example of how a higher cap rate means a lower value and a lower cap rate means a higher value. Our benchmark that we look at in the industry, cap rates, it's a lot like a bond yield. You know, when, when the bond yield goes down, then the value goes up. And so for real estate, it's the same way. It's a ratio of the income and the price. If the cap rate's going down, it's because the income and the income is constant. It's because the price is going up. Someone's valuing that dollar of income more. So if the net operating income on a specific office building is $200,000. And you have determined based on the research using your data that the cap rates in the area are 5%. Then what is that building worth? So that's going to be $4 million. And then I guess if the cap rate is higher, then the value is going to be lower because now that $200,000 represents 7% of the value. And if and if the cap rate is lower, like say 3%, then that $200,000 only represents 3% of the value, so the value would be higher. It's all about how much do people value that dollar of income from the building. As that percentage rate goes down, it says that they're valuing it more and more. As the cap rate goes up, uh, it says that they're valuing that dollar of income less. So when an investor who's using your data, are they also doing an analysis as to whether or not they can invest that capital somewhere else and get the same or better return with less management because real estate does have to be managed? Or are they just in real estate and they're going to use that as part of their investment acquisition decision? It's decided at a different level for every investor. There's some people who are coming to us. They're in real estate. This is what they do. This is the only thing they're looking at. There are other types of investors that are coming to us who are multi-asset class global investors. They're trying to think about where does real estate in North America stand against, say, their mining interests in Africa versus some public equity that they have in Europe. You know, big global funds trying to make those comparisons. Once that decision has been made that they're going to have a certain amount of real estate and in an area of the world, they're coming to us to think about you know, what type of benchmarks do they need to have to underwrite an acquisition in that area. So you talked about global funds. Is this only for institutional enterprise or you know, can the smaller operator, investor, developer benefit from this big data and all these conclusions? Anybody can benefit from having more information. The large institutional groups tend to come to us, though, because you know, they have more of a budget to pay for this type of information. There is information that we'll make available at a more regional level. If some say a regional operator, maybe they need more market information on just uh, the northeast of the United States, for instance. That becomes available. There's also stuff that we do just for some sense it's marketing purposes, but it's also informational where we put some price indices up on our website for public consumption. We also have a blog where we look at different issues in the world of commercial real estate, and that helps provide some information and interpretation of what's happening in the market today. 
is the data just transactional in terms of sales, or is it also looking at population growth, job growth, employment opportunities, level of education, all the different factors that people would look into before they invested in an area and see whether there's expansion or contraction? The information that we're collecting is just the capital market side of of the market. All those other factors that might go into decision-making for an investor, there's a bunch of groups out there in the data world tracking demographic information to roll that up if they need to and compare it against our data set. We're sticking to our knitting, the thing we're really good at, capital markets and commercial real estate. In the United States, we're tracking all transactions over $2.5 million, investment sale activity, financing at that acquisition, and the refinancing activity. We're also tracking construction activity and the construction financing. And then globally, we're currently doing the investment sale activity, but we have some work underway to get additional information on both construction and debt financing worldwide. Our goal is to really set up something where around the world, we can paint a total picture of capital flows into real estate. So far, you've talked about the global funds, the institutional enterprise that would use your data. Who else would use your data? Anybody under the sun who touches commercial real estate uses our data. Whether you are involved in the brokerage world, whether you're a regulator, whether you're a lender, there's always some need to understand the price characteristics of this asset class And they're coming to us to get that information to help people make better decisions. Describe to me some special situations that you've done. Go back a couple of years, and there was a lot of concern about a wave of refinancing that was going to be coming from the CMBS market fallout in 2007. The thought was that all this stuff would be coming to the market to not be able to refinance. And we took the time to look at every loan that was originated back in that period took the collateral and figured out what the collateral might trade at today by marking the asset value to market using our commercial property price index. And by going through and doing that loan by loan, we realized that just given the recovery in prices in the market, most of it was not going to be a problem, that it wasn't the the big thing that everybody should have feared. And so with that, you know, we helped paint that picture that there wasn't going to be this big wave of distress of all these loans coming due and not being able to refinance. And right after that, there was a big sigh of relief? Well, a sigh of relief for some folks and uh, uh, a wringing of hands for others who were hoping that there would be a distressed situation so they can go and buy everything on the cheap. They were selling short. (laughs) Right. When I was looking at the data that you had sent over to me prior to our talk, There's a section on alternative investing, which includes student housing, medical, senior housing and care, self-storage, data centers, and manufactured housing. What drew RCA to these emerging alternatives? Alternative real estate is something we went into because our clients were going that way. The investment world has seen prices for the traditional property types, apartments, office, industrial, retail, hotels. They've seen the prices climb up to record highs. The yield that they can achieve on those investments, meaning like the cap rate, that's at a record low in most cases. And so they're hungry for that yield from something. So they've been looking to these more thinly traded alternative property sectors as a potential yield boost. 
That said, there's also some demographic forces driving people to think about them. Uh, think about things like senior housing or medical office or student housing. There's different demographic needs that have been pointing towards those as a source of growth. The fact that the clients are kind of running that way, we're making sure we're covering those markets as well. How long have you been studying these alternative investments? We've always had them as something on our radar, but really since 2015, that's the best sample set for the total market for performance. It's more on your radar since 2015. Give me an example. Tell me a story about one of the sectors, like, I don't know, student housing. Yeah, student housing is a fun one for me. If you think about some of the physical aspects, you know, they're in these college towns, right? smaller markets. It's not going to be you know the, the larger markets for the most part. But the type of asset classes that they're competing against are the, the traditional dorm setting or the traditional apartment. If you're competing against a traditional garden apartment and say you know, a secondary or tertiary market, you have to think about what the, what the pricing difference is on these assets versus say that garden apartment. And, and over time, as more investors have been seeing the demographic need of a large population of you know, folks in that 18 to 25 age range that might be going to school, they've been chasing that and they've been bidding up the value of these assets. The spread in the cap rates between, say, a garden apartment complex and a student housing complex, that was maybe 50 to 80 basis points you know, back before you know, the investors jumped in with abandon into the sector. Recently, the spread's been coming closer to five to 10 basis points, very little extra margin. And you get that extra margin, but the thing is, you're taking on a lot more risk in the student housing side. I was at a student housing conference and I had some free time, so I started walking around through the exhibition hall just to see what type of things are people selling to student housing operators. And I'm seeing these people selling furniture and I'm asking them why it's, why it's so special. And they're highlighting how it's vomit proof and all the things that go into college life. And you know that's extra maintenance costs. That's extra costs of running these buildings. And so if you have that extra risk and some extra costs in terms of the management, you know, to get the same type of cap rate that you might get for something that's less uh, management intensive tells me they're starting to take on a little bit more risk in the sector than they had in the past. So in this particular case, the conclusion is maybe it's not as valuable as you would like it to be. I think the story in student housing has been that so many people have been interested in it and so many people have been chasing it that they've already eroded some of the advantages that were there for high yield. I mean, it's not to say that don't like student housing and get out of student housing. There's going to be great deals there still. but. The best opportunities, I think, for many folks will be in the past. Senior housing. So as people become older and as a result of technology and an awareness of health and fitness are living longer, senior housing is different than it used to be maybe even 10 years ago. The senior housing sector has been changing a lot in, in recent periods, and we've started to see some price differences there as well. Our name for the whole category is senior housing and nursing care. The folks in the industry have many gradations of quality and focus on each property, which really gets into sort of the level of service that goes with it. We kind of segmented just the two sides, the senior housing versus the nursing care. 
At the nursing care, cap rates have been going up. Activity there has been trailing off some. Those are the facilities that have the most intense services offered for healthcare. The challenge has been that, number one, there's been some changes in terms of reimbursement to operators from the federal government. And so that's been making some additional risk in the sector. But then number two, people are living longer, but living healthier as they get older. And that's changing some of the need. Maybe you don't have that nursing care need for as many years in your retirement as in the past. A 50-year-old in the 1980s is very different than a 50-year-old today. And if you extend that out, you know, a 70-year-old, an 80-year-old today is very different than a 70 or 80-year-old in the past. You know, those kind of changes, it's going to change the need of different segments of the senior nursing and senior care sectors. One of the other property types that you mentioned in alternatives is data centers. And I always wonder about data centers. They're the place where all the data lives on the machines. And I guess there's a ton of redundancy across data centers so that if something goes wrong in one, the data is still there. Are the users of the data centers buying the land, building them, and then using them? Or are they being built by specialty organizations who then lease them to the users of the data centers? The data center world, it's an interesting one. I look at it as sort of a component of the whole industrial world. Industrial properties overall, investors see a story there of more things moving online. And so that has an impact for where consumer activity happens. There's more stuff happening at a logistics facility as opposed to a mall. That's one element driving demand there. But then when they shop online and do all these clicks, those clicks have to live in a computer server. And that's where the data center sector comes in. In terms of who's involved in it, it's a little bit of all the above. It's the users themselves in some cases, but there are companies that have been providing those services. You have REITs like Digital Realty Trust out there. It's a sector where people have been taking a very hard look at it because there is an understanding that there's growth of online activity and all the information that comes with it, there's a need to manage it and there's an opportunity there. Where are these data centers located? The classic thought is that a data center is off in the hinterlands with chain link fence and security dogs and some advanced uh, electrical system. And there are those, but there are data centers that are closer in. If you are in your office and your IT guy has to run out to do something at the server quickly, you don't want them to have to drive four hours out to the wilderness to be able to make a change of a hard drive. Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans, to take a moment to share with you that I love that you choose to listen and learn from Realty Speak. We go deep with so many topics on the show. The result? You get plenty of great information and strategies you can use. And what I learned from my guest as the creator and host of Realty Speak translates to me being the best I can be as a trusted advisor, consultant, and real estate broker. Remember, every transaction is different, and so are you, the people involved. A successful outcome will depend on execution of proper planning, and I welcome the opportunity to listen closely to your desired outcome and then carefully guide you through the process to ultimately achieve your goals. So, if you're contemplating a purchase into your portfolio or a sale out of your portfolio of a building or development site, or you would like to refinance, get a purchase mortgage or construction loan on investment real estate, then feel free to reach out to me. 
I can help you no matter where you're located. Happy to chat. No transaction required. Call me. The number, 917-232-8529. And all my contact info is on the contact page of my website, billwidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. Forecasting. Forecasting is great when it's right, and it's not when it's not. Talk to me about the data, things you work on, and how forecasting comes into play. I used to do explicit forecasting, meaning I would be out there and I would say, in the coming year, prices will grow X percent. Prices will change Y percent and making calls on different sectors about very point-level stuff, what's going to happen next. My current job, I'm not doing that. Are you glad you're not doing that anymore? Yes and no. On the one hand, I enjoy doing that, and I don't mind taking a stand. Were you right a lot? I was, because part of it was the approach that I was taking. The group I was with, we had a long-standing approach of looking at everything in kind of very structural manner. You had certain inputs from the economy that would drive tenant demand. You had certain inputs from the financial markets that would change how an investor values a dollar of income. You combine that sort of change in tenant demand and what that means for rents and income with how people value the income, and you can come up with a forecast of prices. And I would have an opinion. I would stand behind it. Today, I'm not doing that at Real Capital Analytics. We are mostly just focused on here's where the current data is. However, I use all that history I have from my forecasting world to inform what I'm writing about the current market and making some subjective forecast of what happens next. You know, if certain events are driving capital flows to the sector and those events are starting to cool off, I'll write some stuff about that and highlighting how that might be changing pricing in the future. So start getting into a little bit more fuzzy stuff around forecasting. It was in some ways, for me, more fun to make that call to say it's going to be exactly this amount in the future, even though I knew there was always a confidence band around it. Just the process you went through to set that up was, to me, very exciting. It's really hard for us to predict the future. And obviously, you could take historical data and say, you know, this is what I believe is going to happen based on this historical data and also everything I'm observing in the specific location environment of this particular sector. But if something happens that you didn't anticipate, it could greatly change what the outcome is. There's forecasting based on sort of the the trend in the market, but then you always have an outside shock and you never know what happens next after that outside shock. We're here in New York and FIDI and think about after 9-11, this whole area, I mean, talk about, you know, an outside shock. Tremendous changes since the area has grown around that. But from time to time, you get, do get those unpredictable events. And then it's just a matter of how do you recover from that shock and where does it bounce back? You can't predict those things, those black swans. But thinking about the performance relative to other trends and what happens next, given assumptions on the economy, that still is useful to help people make decisions on how they're going to be thinking about allocating capital to different areas. 
And when you are trying to pick the sweet spot in the marketplace, I mean, let's go back to 2008. And if you, in maybe even as early as 2009, and certainly 2010, 11, and 12, started investing a lot of dry powder into New York City real estate, you're sitting in a very nice place right now. How do you figure that out? How do you take something like the financial crisis of 2008 and figure when that sweet spot is going to be? Because if you waited until 2015, it's too late. If you were buying up a lot of real estate in 2007, then you were going to hold on to it for a while. How do you get to that sweet spot? Well, if you were buying a lot of real estate in 2007, you're lucky if you're able to hold on to it for a while. I mean, that was the problem a lot of folks had. They bought it and then they just couldn't keep up with the debt service. You know, that that downturn and the, the change, I think about my own personal situation. I made a call in 2009 that we were at the bottom and the market was going to grow. I bought a house then up in Boston and it was it was a wonderful time to buy. It was difficult at the same time, even though I had great credit, had you know, a really good down payment. The challenge was financing was still a problem. The banks, you know, the loan officer loved everything he saw, but the bank was still being very risk averse at the time. And if you take that type of risk aversion over to the commercial side, you know, it was difficult for people to get financing at the time. So they had to come in with a lot more equity. And that that's where I think the rebound in some sense really came from. As lenders became more comfortable with the sector, people were able to get back to normal levels of leverage. You know, when you take 60% of the capital stack away, you're going to have a bad day. And as capital kept coming back into that debt portion of the capital stack, it allowed you know the market to recover and prices to recover. That was, to me, the big shock that said in 2009, I got to get into this now because the debt situation is uh, unsustainable. The market will come back in terms of more debt being available and prices will recover. And if we use your personal situation as a metaphor to answer the question, is really two factors. One factor is that you had the ability, capital-wise, to make the investment, but because of your understanding of the marketplace, you also knew it was the right time to do it. I guess my question was, you know, how do you know the sweet spot? And would you say that knowing this, the sweet spot is marrying those two factors, having the capital to do it, number one, and number two, understanding the marketplace enough and all the different aspects of the marketplace, that's really how you know when the sweet spot is. You really put the nail on the head there. It was the fact that I was liquid, the fact that I had, I saw the housing boom. And as early as 2005, I started talking with my clients about how I didn't think it was sustainable and how I thought that there was too much high-octane debt being used to pump up the housing market. If I knew about the derivatives market at that time, I'd be very, very wealthy today. But you know, that, that you know, ability to stay liquid as I went into it and then understanding sort of the structure of the market and how debt goes into it and the importance that debt plays in supporting pricing – and as that started to come back, I knew it was an opportunity. You know, you just set me up for another question. It's 2020. We are now almost 12 years, because it was really September of 2008. So we're almost 12 years beyond. We have stock market at the highs that it's ever been. 
real estate is booming all over the country in different marketplaces. And while there has been a little bit of contraction in different areas, for the most part, we have a very, very strong economy. Are we in another one of those peaks? I don't think we're at the same type of situation that we were 12 years ago. 12 years ago, the debt situation going into the expansion was at just outrageous levels. You had liar loans in the commercial side. You had LTVs 95, 99%. And you had you know, such an abundance of debt that required income to continue to grow and properties to, for an investor to actually come out of the investment alive. Investors active in the commercial side today are paying more than they had in the past. Prices are at record highs. Cap rates are at record lows. But it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Relative to all other fixed income investments, there's still a safety margin between the performance of the commercial real estate and, say, bond returns. When you have bond returns worldwide in a lot of the developed world, actually delivering negative returns to investors. Effectively, you're paying the Central Bank of Switzerland to hold your cash for you. There comes a point when that money says, I got to earn something, and they're buying real estate, but they're doing it at a different level today. They're not buying it with a lot of borrowing and expectation of tremendous income growth to kind of bail them out of the, the high debt situation they're in. They're buying it and just happy with a very comfortable low yield. So lower leverage, higher equity creates a buffer so that if something catastrophic does happen again, it's not necessarily going to have the same impact. The key thing there is if something happens, we could have some outside shock. Think of the coronavirus situation in China. And if that spreads, there's all kinds of negative things we could think about that, you know, where things might go wrong. But as long as you have some sort of temporary shock, we're at a safer situation today for all these uh, owners and borrowers, that they'll be able to weather a short-term uh, challenge a lot easier than they had been in the past. Then there's that bigger issue of financial stability and sort of this fact that there is all this money looking for this safe, stable yield. At some point, if we're lucky, that does go away in the sense that investors see something better to do with their money than just give it to the Swiss bank and uh, have them uh, charge a fee because that really says that we're in a low growth economic environment. If we get a little bit faster economic growth, you should see rates rise a little bit with a little bit more competition for capital. And you know that's going to be a challenge for property because it might mean that you know the ratio of borrowing costs and ratio of cap rates goes up. On the other hand, a growing economy where there's competition for capital means that tenant demand will grow and you'll see job creation, you'll see faster household formation, and that can help boost income growth. So it, there's a bit of a trade-off there, but I think you know all those combination of factors, it's a safer time today than, say, at the peak in 07. Let's segue into opportunity zones, affordable housing, and demands on infrastructure. Those were three topics that I wanted to cover. And if you could just touch on each one of those. And when I say opportunity zones, it's the opportunity zone program that came out of the tax bill from 2017. And when I talk about affordable housing, I mean, there is a crisis. There's not enough affordable housing in a lot of places. And of course, we just had the change in the rent laws in New York State. California, Oregon uh, had already gone there. Well, actually, California came after New York. And then, of course, the demands on infrastructure where there is a building boom. And 
there's an increase in population and the infrastructure not having the ability to support that. Let's start with Opportunity Zones. The Opportunity Zone program, I think it was a neat idea. I think in the execution, it hasn't lived up to some of the hype. The notion is that there are areas in the United States that are capital starved, lower income communities, poor communities, where investors are not putting money to work. And this really was something that came out of a lot of thought from folks in the technology world. They saw a lot of investment in Silicon Valley and in the tech markets. And there was a thought that, well, what if we could do something that can help push more capital into underutilized parts of the economy? So a tax credit system was set up so that an investor could roll gains that they've made in stock holdings into one of these opportunity zones, and they could roll them into those areas at a tax discount and a deferred tax discount. So if you put that money to work, you don't have to pay taxes on those gains in the near term. And then when you do eventually sell out to take that money, you get a discount off of the initial gain that you had to pay a tax on. Plus, the big kicker is that any investment you made in the opportunity zone, the gains that you earn there would be tax-free over uh, an extended period. And it's a neat idea of kind of giving some incentives to capital to go to particular areas for growth. But I think the whole program hasn't lived up to what everybody was hoping. There's been some money moving in, but it's nowhere near the hundreds of billions of people are talking about money moving into. And I think there's a couple challenges to it. One, the rules on it were just so complicated. And you know, we had a government shutdown in the end of 2018 that delayed the rulemaking from the IRS over an extended period. And it took a while for the market to catch up to that, to catch up that to the fact that the rules weren't in place. And you know, nobody's going to put money to work if they don't know what the rules of the game will be. Yeah, the final rules just came out in December 2019, and that was two years after the bill was passed. Yeah. And it kind of eliminated for a lot of people, even that first tier of savings, which was the seven-year deferment of paying capital gains tax. Because if you didn't invest by December 31st, 2019, you aren't going to get that. It's hard with you know all those changes and rules coming through for people to kind of get their heads around it. The other thing that was a problem is that the type of folks who have those gains in the stock market that they could redeploy into those areas, they want control. If I am some well-heeled investor and I've made tens of millions of dollars in the stock market and I put that money into a fund, I want control over what's going to happen. A fund structure doesn't really lend itself to that. I have a need as someone trying to get after that opportunity fund credit to keep my capital locked up for 10 years. What if there's some other investor in the fund that for whatever reason tries to get out early? What does that do to me? And all the uncertainty around that you know, led you know, to less money moving in than you know, people had really hoped. I'm not negative about it, though. I look at this thing as, a, as an experiment. It's, it's an approach to public policy to direct money into areas that need some help. It's one attempt. 10 years from now, maybe we start something else. 20 years after that, there will be something else. I view this as sort of an iterative thing and we learn over time. Cities are living things and growing things, trying to find the right way to put capital into different areas. You know, it's not an immediate answer, but it's, 
I look at this as an interesting experiment. We'll see uh, some good results. We'll see some bad results or learn some things. And we'll have other good programs coming out of this in the future. And RCA is studying what's happening in these opportunity zones? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're tracking everything priced $2.5 million and greater. And so we've been watching capital move into those areas. The things that have really been selling in those areas are development sites. People buying a piece of land, buying an older building to redevelop it into something else. That's been seeing growth at a time where nationally, development site sales have been falling because of concerns about labor costs are going up for construction, material costs are going up for construction. But in the opportunity zones, those development sites have been selling at a faster pace because there's a bit of a, a bit of a boost for these developers as they come in from the program. And for the listeners that aren't that familiar with the opportunity zones, we're talking about it from the real estate perspective, but it is also used for businesses. So there can be qualified opportunity zone businesses as well that don't necessarily have to own the real estate. So I just want to point that out. What about affordable housing? Affordable housing has been getting an awful lot of attention, both as an investment class, but also just the broad issue of the fact that rents are high. The challenge that we face, and because you brought up this issue about rent control earlier, and there's an issue that we face that in a lot of markets around the country, that rents are now capturing a higher share of household income than in many times in the past. There's some historical data from New York on apartment rents that goes back to 1914. And if looking through all those series, if you look at the period from 1944 to 1998, rents were flat. I mean, rents were going up, but it was really only going up at the pace of inflation. So it's kind of a constant share of household income that was going to rent. And then come 1998, rents started growing at a very fast clip. At first, it didn't really sting so much. Folks are able to absorb some of that. But we've come to a point where a lot of households are just stretched too much. They feel that there's too much of their income kind of being directed that way. And it's hard in the city unless you are a high-income earner. And a lot of folks don't have that in the city. A city needs folks, yeah, from the tech sector, from the finance sector, from advertising. But we also need folks working at a deli. We need folks working at a coffee shop. You need a mix of incomes and a mix of skills to make a city work. And if we're trying to see income grow, but then you start to price out all the folks who help make a city work, we're going to have a problem. But that affordability crisis We have folks trying to think that they can just put a cap on rents and just limit rents and that will solve everything. And it feels nice, but it's a band-aid solution. I don't think it really gets at the fundamental reason of why rents climb so strong from 1998, even though, you know, in that previous 50-year period, they've been kind of flat. And I think part of it really gets into transportation. We were talking a little bit about transportation, but that's part of the solution here. If, if you go back to 1944, you know, we were just coming off of, and we're still in the middle of, a building boom that was underway for new modes of transit to help people get around the metro area faster than ever before. We subsidized uh, investors and, and uh, uh, residents at the time to move further out into the suburbs with these brand new shiny highways and bridges. The legacy of Robert Moses building all these uh, great projects. That helped people make a situation where they could say to themselves, okay, I can't afford to live here, but if I just drive a little bit, I can afford to live there. And that helped keep uh, prices in check and it helped people from being displaced from their current home to some degree because there wasn't that incentive to kind of upzone a building. 
because there was always an opportunity to go one highway exit down and build something else. Over time, we stopped investing in that transit infrastructure and the value of being closer and closer to the center and closer to your job became higher. And so then you get the situation of folks kind of competing with each other and pricing out folks have been living in neighborhoods for some time. What you're saying then is to live closer to where you work. So if you work in Brooklyn or you work in Manhattan, then living in the suburbs is not going to be as easy as it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. And that increases demand and demand increases rents. It does. But we could solve that if we built better infrastructure, then people could move around the region more easily. Think of the way commuting patterns happen in Beijing or commuting patterns in Tokyo, other global cities comparable to New York. People are traveling distances like from here to Philadelphia or here to Boston in very short periods of time on the train to get into the city and have a job in the city, but a lifestyle in a different city with lower residential costs that just kind of spread out the, the demand for the area. The other thing that's different is construction. We had a point in time when developers could go in and you know take a single family home and if the market demanded it, tear it down and build a three or four story building that provided many housing units. We've made it much more difficult to build in many US cities than in the past. That limit on construction activity is ultimately driving up costs as well. So in the answer to the affordable housing question, we talked a little bit about infrastructure. Let's look at Manhattan as a, and Brooklyn as an example. There were so many new buildings that went up, and they went up high, and they went out wide, and you're increasing the population in these locations. I mean, some of them have an affordable component to them, and we have no more room for any more infrastructure. What do we do? All these buildings that are coming into an urban area, you need subway services. You need infrastructure of other types like sewer, water, electricity, just to take care of the population. So that has to be built. Now, the subways, we've been consuming our capital investment that we made there over the last century, and it's been a problem here. Ideally, you could expand it. You could put more money to work there and improve service, build additional stops, build additional tunnels. The New York Times did a great study on that and how New York compares to other global cities like Paris. We're spending a lot of money for development of new infrastructure compared to what we get. In many cases, using too many workers for every individual project. It's not to say that it's all the union's fault. I mean, you can have good paying union jobs in construction, building new infrastructure for us. But if we did it more like the French are doing this and they're protecting worker rights there, we'd have a better situation here in New York. We can do it. We just have to change some of the rules of how that goes in. When that happens, there's always a group of people that aren't popular that want to continue to be popular. You know, that that issue of popularity and trying to get things done, in some respects, I feel like we've gone a little too far to listen to every constituent and what they have to say. There's this whole community board process that started not just New York, but it's in all parts of the country. And in some cases, the community boards are just preventing anything from ever changing. You do need community input. You know, you don't want everything to be like the world where Robert Moses was thinking of bulldozing the village so he could put it in a highway. You need some folks who really are thinking about sort of the long-term residents of an area. 
But there's got to be a fine line between one person can shut down the world and another person can just bulldoze the whole thing. So I think we're a little bit too far on sort of that you know, community board trying to decide everything to, uh, side of the equation. Is RCA doing studies on infrastructure and making forecasts of what the needs would be based on current trends? The one area where we do look at infrastructure is how does infrastructure impact prices? One of the indices that we create is the price trends for properties based on how walkable the environment is around the building. And so in the office market, for instance, when we have sort of a segmentation of buildings that are highly walkable, buildings that if you want to get there, it's totally car dependent, and some stuff in between, those assets in the suburbs that have some combination of walkability plus, you know, the car stuff that's always uh, popular in suburbs, you know, they've tended to outperform in most of this economic cycle. There's been a move as some folks have been leaving the cities and naturally the, the millennials as they, you know, they're older now, they're starting to have kids and families. They enjoyed the city. They don't want to lose everything on that. And some of those suburban areas that have those transit mix options where they can take the train and walk to work, those are doing better. In my mind, infrastructure is a force that helps improve property values. So I've been looking at it from that perspective. How about the emergence of the live, work, play community, which is almost city in the suburbs? Live, work, play. I look at that as a return to how cities have always been. You've always had in cities sort of a mix of uses in a lot of areas. We got away from that in the 60s and 70s with this thought of we're going to build these highways, we'll have one use over here for retail, we'll have another use over here for office. That's not really how, as human animals, we set up our cities in the past. It was, you know, you leave home, you walk around, you engage with people in the city as you go to work, go to the store, and building that sense of community again, because it makes people like that environment more. It gives you a sense of place. If you have a sense of place and a sense of something that you enjoy, you can get those tenants and those consumers and those workers to be stickier and want to stay there. And that's the challenge I think a lot of folks in the retail world have today. How do I convince people to keep coming to my place? If there is that sense of community, that helps draw them back. What would you say is a good place to have this live, work, play pop out of? The blank slate piece of land or some kind of existing asset that is reaching the end of its economic life, like a mall? Live, work, play only works in certain areas is one of the challenges. Like an old mall, you could do that. And there are some malls where people have been going in, taking all the acres of parking that would only fill up at Christmas shopping holidays, and taking that excess land and turning it into mixes of residential and office and tying it into the mall becomes a little bit more revitalized, aimed at some of the consumers who are going to be living in those buildings and working in those buildings. The challenge is it doesn't work everywhere. There's a lot of malls built in the 1960s and 1970s in these industrial towns in the Midwest where you had a big manufacturing base that has really changed. You don't have that same income base. You don't have the same workers in place. So yeah, you could probably buy a mall there really cheap, but there's nobody there working and living that would want to move into this. So some of it's a story about not just finding the right asset and redeveloping it. It's finding the right place and doing this in the communities where there is some economic life that real estate can help service. Glad we got into the emerging alternative sector. 
That was uh, that was really great. And our time together is drawing to a close soon, Jim. Unless you have something else you want to share with the group, I only have one more question for you. Okay. If you woke up tomorrow and something in the data world changed, what do you wish that would be? I wish I had all the data. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, the there's a lot of information that's out there that people collect as just part of their day-to-day routine of doing business, and it goes into a little rabbit hole, and it's never seen again. So it's a joke, but I actually mean it at the same time. It'd be nice if all the systems that are out there that people are using things, if it was easy to access it in some way. And some of it's sensitive. Nobody's going to want to share you know, to say that one person earns X amount and the other person earns Y amount, that's sensitive personal information. You can't get that. But there's got to be a way to kind of combine it all so that you can look at it anonymously from the individuals working in a place to what different tenants are paying to the structure of different leases. Some way to aggregate it all anonymously. That would be, that would be wonderful. Is there going to be a way, and I, I know I said one more question, but now you maybe have a second one. Is there going to be a way that we can maintain that level of privacy and still have enough data transparency to be able to make good forward-thinking decisions? I think that the information market is going to continue to become clearer and clearer. Our sector, commercial real estate, go back when CBRE team had uh, started up their vacancy index in the United States. It was it was mind-boggling at the time. Here's somebody trying to benchmark where vacancy is for office buildings, and came out of a paper report every quarter. Now you know that type of stuff is everywhere. But it just one little benchmark helped a lot for the sector to get some information. It's really growing at an exponential pace at this point. I think you know 20 years from now, the type of information that the sector has. There's going to be so much more coming through with the advances in computing power, the advances in sort of the understanding that people have that there's value in continuing to track what they're doing. That's something that I'm very confident that we're going to see a lot more information coming through over the next 20 years. How will our listeners continue this journey with you, Jim? How can they get in touch? Anybody can send me an email, follow me on Twitter. My email, jcostello at rcanalytics.com. I'm on Twitter often as well. What's your Twitter handle? Jim Costello, C-R-E. All right, great. And LinkedIn? And on LinkedIn as well, but that has a whole bunch of digits and numbers, and I don't remember that one very easily. Right, but if they just look up your name, Jim Costello, there's no other Jim Costellos on LinkedIn, is there? I'm sure there's a few, but... uh, (laughs) If they put in Real Capital Analytics, they'll find me. They'll find you. Definitely find me there. All right, well, that'll all be in the show notes on the website, so you don't have to worry about writing it down. Jim, that was extraordinary. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and the Realty Speak audience today and teach us how to use data to be profitable. Oh, this is fun. Thanks so much. Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so right on the player. Just choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music or search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. And please share our show with others. Just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And send it in an email 
or send it in a text. And of course, you can always get all the episodes and contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time. Thank <laughs> you.